As junior church is dismissed, open your Bibles to Isaiah 63, please. Isaiah 63. As we uh, think about being guilty and think about asking someone for mercy, how are you going to approach it? When you're guilty, when you're in the wrong, and you're looking for mercy, how would you talk to the person about showing you mercy uh, you, you, you might try to defend somewhat your actions a little bit, uh, put them in context. Uh, you might try to cite enough positive qualities about yourself so that you can establish a basis for mercy over that for which you are really truly guilty. Today we're going to see the Lord being approached for mercy. And, and in the context, we're going to see a day uh, that envisions God destroying evil nations. And this vision really tees up the last chapters of Isaiah, leading to the new heaven, the new earth. But the path to get there for Israel includes repentance and seeking God's mercy. And um, it, it, it's going to yield a prayer from the people of God to God. And it's going to be a prayer for mercy, and it's not going to be based on the character of the people. The prayer for mercy is going to be based on the character of God, based on who He is. And what you will see is that you, when you approach God for mercy, you are free to express all of your guilt, all of the blackness of your soul, the, the, the darkness, the, the, um, the evil. You are free. Now, I do not recommend you do this in a court of law. If you're at Olmstead County and you're guilty, uh, this would not be a strategy for law. Because the law at Olmstead County has a, 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 a tit-for-tat kind of a justice system. There is no Messiah at Goodhue County who has lived unlimited uh, pool of righteousness to, to share with you or has suffered a, a, a limitless pool of, of debt and death on the cross to pay your, 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 uh, your, your guilt at Olmstead County. But when you approach God Almighty, it's a whole different economy of justice. In fact, you must confess your guilt. And based on the character of God, we see redemption in this chapter. Now, chapter 62, we covered on Wednesday night. Uh, we did that on Wednesday night because it was a bit of repetitive material from what we've seen. Uh, God is covenanting to restore Jerusalem in many wonderful ways with sharp imagery, and we, we covered that. But you may recall our study from chapter 61. I believe it was a week ago. If you go to chapter 61, uh, Isaiah 61, verse number 1, um, we will see a passage that Jesus quoted in, and we saw this in uh, Luke chapter 4. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty among the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now in verse number 2, you're going to see where Jesus cuts off the quotation between the first and the second comment. Uh, Jesus included this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he cut it off here, and he did not include, and the day of vengeance of our God. And I would suggest to you that between those two strophes of Isaiah 61-2 is 2,000 years of history. You have there the first coming of Christ to proclaim favor and liberty, and the second coming to exercise vengeance. And that's where we pick it up today in chapter 63, verse 1. 
We're going to see in verses 1 through 6 an image of vengeance. In in verse number 7, we're going to see the history of the Lord toward Israel. And then in verse number 15, we're going to see Israel's prayer. Okay? Let's let's look at this vision of vengeance. I'm in Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the people, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And I think this is the voice of the prophet in verse number 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted, and the great goodness of the house of Israel that He has granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He said, Surely they are My people, children who will not deal falsely, and He became their Savior. In all their affliction He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and fought himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put them in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. And now we begin the prayer that will actually continue through chapter 64. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, though I and Isaac does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer, from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants. The tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you had never ruled. Like those who are not called by your name. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today, we ask that you would give us a spirit of repentance. Help us to come boldly before the throne of grace and acknowledge who we are. All of this, God, begins with acknowledging who you are. You are God. You are creator. You are love. You are mercy. 
And Father, it is based on your character that we can so boldly recognize who we are, sinful. God, depraved in so many ways, our thought life, Lord, none of us would want to open that up to one another. And Father, you already know all. So when we confess our sins, we are not telling you anything new. We are really coming to agreement with you. And I pray that you would cause your word to work in us so that we would come in agreement to you that we are sinful people and that we need cleansing and that we need salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you for providing that. Bless us as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin here, we see a different uh, side of the Messiah in verses 1 through 6 where he exercises bloody vengeance on his enemies. Uh, Beginning in verse 1, who is this who comes from Edom? in crimson garments garments from Basra. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatnesses of of strength. So that's the question. The answer comes from the Messiah. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. The question again. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? The answer, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the people, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood is splattered on my garments. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. It's interesting there that vengeance and redemption fit together. They go together. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Well, he's coming from Edom. And, and why are we picking on Edom? Why are we singling out Edom when there are so many nations? It could be just symbolic. If you go back to chapter 34 of Isaiah, verse 1, uh, you're going to see uh, in these six verses I'm about to read, you're going to see God, God's anger at the nations. But Edom is going to really epitomize the nations in this passage. So it could be that he's referencing Edom here just as symbolic for the nations. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, their stench of their corpses shall rise, the mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Here you have Edom again. Upon the people I have devoted to destruction, the Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. So clearly there God is judging all of the nations that do not repent, that do stand against him, and yet he singles out Edom there again. Here we see it today, and there could be a few reasons. For one, the word Edom in Hebrew looks like Adam, which is the word for man. So Edom could be standing for mankind. Uh, The um, other unique thing about the word Edom is it means red. And the theme of red seems to be um, uh, consistent with 
the treading out of a wine press and the imagery. In fact, if you look at verse 1, you've got Edom, that means red. And then the next word, Edom is crimsoned. He's coming in crimsoned garments. He's coming from Edom, from red, in red garments. From Basra, the word Basra means vintage, which is kind of a winemaking term, vintage. And then, of course, he says that he is, in verse number 2, treading in the wine press. So it could be simply that Edom fits the symbolism. They are a, an enemy of Israel in history, but also just the theme of red, of blood, of treading out the wine press, of, of, uh, of the vintage, the uh, Basra. All of that just could be working together for a, a poetic unity and symbolism that represents God's anger at the nations, really. Um, the, uh, the, the person who is doing the walking, is the Messiah, as I understand it. He's noteworthy. He walks in the power of his strength. He's, he's in regal garments. He's not in red garments. As you read this, he is in garments that have been splattered red from the destruction. Now, to you that might seem gross and disgusting to think of your Messiah, your Savior, uh, covered in splattered blood from exercising vengeance. Uh, that would be a lack of perspective on sin and judgment on your part, if that is the case. Today we are at January 7th. We are two months since the, uh, since the uh, terrorism that took place in Israel. Uh, as of this morning, I understand 136 hostages have not been returned to their homes. 25 of them are already dead. Their remains have not been returned. 111 are still alive. I, I was looking at a uh, uh, newspaper from uh, Israel yesterday, and they said hostages hauled into Gaza... Um, were, uh, during the attack, were drugged to keep them docile. They used drugs, uh, especially with teens and people who might just not exercise uh, any restraint. They, they drug them up. Uh, they are also subjected to psychological and sexual abuse, a specialist said on Monday. I've never seen anything like that in 20 years of treating trauma victims, said one psychi- uh, psychiatric uh, uh, um, director. The physical, sexual, mental, and psychological abuse of these hostages who came back is just terrible. We have to rewrite the textbook. Now, imagine you have been held hostage for two months, and you have been abused, and everybody around you has facilitated that abuse or waged that abuse, and then all of a sudden a bloody soldier after some skirmish outside your prison, your hole that you're in, There's some kind of skirmish and some soldier walks up and he's just splattered in blood. And he lets you know he is splattered in the blood of those who have been abusing you for two months. I don't think you would be grossed out by that. I think you would appreciate the vengeance against those who have worked against you. And so, again, I I think whenever we see a passage like this, we do not understand holiness. We do not understand the holiness of God. We do not understand the stench of sin, the harm of sin. And how mercy and vengeance go together. Mercy for those who repent, who turn to Jesus Christ. Vengeance for those who stay hard-hearted and, 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 and with their faces like a flint against God. Vengeance is something that is very, very good. It, it goes together with redemption. We see in verses 2 and 3 that he was alone. That, uh, that, that he alone, by his own hand, accomplishes this. And, um, and, and, uh, and it's all about justice and righteous and uh, righteousness. 
We also see in verse number six that I trampled down the peoples. That is another term that is often used to refer to the nations. So this is not Edom alone. Edom stands as one for the many, representative of the whole, much like other authors of Scripture will talk about the great Babylon being judged. God takes the metaphor of drunkenness. He said, I made them drunk with, um, uh, with my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Um, drunkenness, again, is something that causes you to lose control, causes you to be disoriented, and such God will do with his wrath. Now, from this point on, I'm understanding the rest of the book of Isaiah. We've got uh, just three chapters left after today. And I'm understanding the rest of the book of Isaiah to be oriented around this destruction and this, this act of God. And, um, and, and what's going to unfold is next going to be a remembrance of God's work for Israel. It's a, it's a prayer, perhaps, that recounts what God has done for Israel. Look at verse number 7. I will recount, and again, I think this is the voice of the, uh, of the uh, prophet. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. And the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted to them, according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So, we are recounting, we're looking back here. From the author's perspective, we're looking back at what God has done. For he said, surely they are my people, and this is what God said. God said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. So God had expectations of Israel. Were those expectations lived out? Well, keep reading. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. He identified with them. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up, carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled. So he expected something. He said, surely these are my people. Surely they will do right. He had an expectation. That expectation was frustrated. Now, when you see that, keep in mind God is omniscient. He knows the beginning from the end. Okay, so he's not surprised. He is stating a reasonable expectation. When you see that God expected something and it didn't happen, that is what we call an anthropomorphism. That is God putting on human characteristics so you can understand him better. It is not a hit against his omniscience. He knew before the foundations of the world, there's a passage that says, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundations of the world. God had salvation's plan all figured out based on the sinful of man before he created any of it. So God is omniscient. But when, it said, when the Bible says things like it repented God that he made man, uh, you know, that he was sorry that he had made man, th- that's not saying that God was surprised that he didn't know it was going to go this way. It's an anthropomorphism. It's, it's, for you. It's, it's not for you to take a hit against his omniscience. It's for you to understand that you're dealing with a person, not a human, you're dealing with a person, a personal God. He has expectations. He is right to have those expectations. And when mankind sins against him, uh, he is right to have disappointment. Not surprise, but disappointment in those expectations. So uh, th- th- that, is, that is the poetry that is, that is going on. He expects one thing, and it's reasonable, but they rebelled. Look at verse number 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Now that's an interesting phrase in the Old Testament. They grieved his Holy Spirit. That's Trinitarian doctrine in the Old Testament. That's language that you will find in the New Testament, language speaking about the Holy Spirit. And, and he'll, the Holy Spirit will be mentioned three times. Let's keep reading. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. 
Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in them, in the midst of them, his, there we go a second time, his Holy Spirit? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them, to make for himself an everlasting name, that is the glory of God and the people of Israel, who led them through the depths, that would be the Red Sea, uh, like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble, like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. There's the third mention of the Spirit of the Lord. So you led your people to make a name, uh, to make for yourself a glorious name. God led Israel for his own glory. So this, this bit of memory remembers that God gave them the Holy Spirit, that, that God did all of this uh, for his glory. And the Holy Spirit is elsewhere in the Old Testament, like Genesis 1, uh, brooding over the waters, the face of the deep. The Holy Spirit is in, in Psalm 51 when David is confessing his sin and says, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, Holy Spirit did not indwell saints uh, the way he does today, but there was a Holy Spirit anointing on King David that gave him power to do things like kill a bear and kill a giant. Um, like Samson when the Holy Spirit came on him in his strength. Or you've got uh, Saul who had the Holy Spirit taken from him in 1 Samuel 16 because he had disobeyed the Lord. So we see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but you see more of him in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, remember when Jesus was here and he was about to ascend into heaven and he said, no, no, I need to go because something wonderful is going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to proceed from the Father. And, and so uh, the, the, Jesus was very much excited about the ministry of the Holy Spirit that was going to begin at his ascension. So I think naturally you see much more talk about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. And Christians, i got to say this, you have something they didn't. You have a special sealing of the Holy Spirit, a, a presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, when you feel convicted for your sin, that is God in you talking with you. When you take your body and you commit sin, you're taking the Spirit with you, and that is an affront to God because He is a person, not a human. He's a person, an individual. And, and so you have something really special in the indwelling Holy Spirit. So yes, we see more of that now in the New Testament than in the Old, but when we read our Old Testament, we see His presence and we see the Holy Spirit is grieved by what Israel did. So they are remembering God in these passages. They're remembering that God had led them and blessed them. And, and so in light of the coming Messiah who's going to exercise vengeance, in light of the memory of what God has done, Israel is now going to pray a prayer. The prophet is going to pray it for his nation. And we are going to learn something here that sinners may approach God prayerfully for mercy and cleansing from the very sin that is separating us. Even at this moment, if you are overcome with sin, you can confess that. You can plead with him for mercy and though you have not lived five minutes without that sin yet, you can be forgiven and restored. And the Spirit will help you and aid you in, in sanctification. Let's look at verses 15 through 19. Now, this is a prayer. Okay, we're going we're to do a study in prayer here today. This is a prayer that continues through all of chapter 64. And I think I'll go ahead and read through it. Because I want to I help you see something about prayer. Okay, um, I'm a man. I was a boy. 
okay? I want you to imagine I'm a boy, teenage Tim, all right? And I'm going to pray to God. I'm going to ask God for something, all right? And what do I want? I want a strong body. I want mad skills on the court or on the field. And I want lots of money, okay? That's just boy Tim, okay, in the wall. God, I want strength. I want mad skills. I want money. Okay, so when you pray to God about that, how do you pray, dear God? Give me a body, give me mad skills, give me money. Amen. Is that a good prayer? <laughs> Not at all, right? Um, when we, I have a formula I use whenever I pray, and I would encourage you in this. It's adoration, confession, intercession, petition, okay? Um, you don't have to remember those big words. Adoration is you adore God first. When you open your mouth to pray, the first thing that should come out is adoring God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? That, that kind of thing. Um, Uh, The second thing that should come out of your mouth after you recognize who God is, see, at the beginning of your prayer, you're recognizing who you're talking to, this person. And it's right that you do so. He is a royal. He is the king of the universe. It's right that you recognize him and and adore him. Okay, then number two is confession. Uh, Forgive us us our sins even as we forgive others, right? Uh, So you talk about your sins. Okay, and then the third thing is intercession. Now, that's not interceding for the, the body, skill, and bucks that I want. Intercession is what you do for other people. Okay, and then petition, that's where you ask for something at the end, okay? And I highly recommend that formula. You'll see it in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, You won't see it cleanly and perfectly in today's text, but we'll see elements of it in a moment. Okay, so just let's go back to teenage Tim, okay? And and let's say if I were praying that today, how would that prayer go? Well, when I start and I open up the prayer, I'm going to adore God in relationship to the prayer requests I'm getting to. There's always an agenda in these prayers, right? So I've got an agenda. So, Heavenly Father, you are the creator of heaven and earth. You have created me. You've created me for your glory, and uh, you have created my body for your use and your glory. You have given it to me for this time, and I thank you. That would be a way to adore God, recognizing him as the creator of your body. Next, you would confess your sin. Now, if we're going to confess our sins related to the topic we're getting to, um, well, Father, I am vain. (laughs) I am prideful. And many times, uh, you have blessed me in various ways, and I turn your blessings, your gifts, into matters of pride where I actually think I'm truly better than somebody else because I could do this better, where I look better than this other person. I actually turn, so God, I, I am a sinful, prideful creature. And Father, really, when it comes to money, I am materialistic, and I value that more than you too often. So forgive me. And now we're going to intercede, and so since I'm thinking of myself and my needs, I'm going to think of some other uh, men with needs, and, and you young men, you've been coming to church with us, you're here on Wednesday nights, so you might say, uh, God, we pray, I, I want to pray for uh, Howard, um, 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 uh, no, yeah, no, no, I'm just thinking of Swanson, of Dwayne, for Dwayne Swanson, yeah, or, or Howard, but I, I want to pray for uh, Howard, I want to pray for Dwayne, and God, there's just, just some suffering, there's some needs. And, uh, and, and, Father, I pray that you would solve the, the, the riddle of healing from surgery and, and of being independent and being able to be mobile. And, and we just had a funeral yesterday. And, Father, I pray for my brother Wayne and, and the loss and the family. I just pray, God, for your strength. I pray for your, your, your healing of the heart and to help and carry them through that. And now it's time for our petition. We've adored. We've confessed. We've interceded for others who are in true need. And now we're getting to our little request about wanting muscles, mad skills, 
and money after having confessed that we are prideful, materialistic people. You see how this works? Okay, all of a sudden, by the time you get to what I want, it's, it's, it's put into a proper frame of reference. Okay, let's see how this works here. Adoration, look at chapter 63, verse 14. Verse 15, verse 14. Like livestock that go down in the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. God, you have led us in the past to your glory. Verse 15, look down from heaven and see. Now that is a request, but it is also adoration because God is transcendent. He is above all of this. Look down from heaven and see. From your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? Uh, That could be a question or a statement. The the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. This is, again, adoration. You are our father. And the names Abraham and Israel, those are individuals here. For though Abraham does not know us and Israel, Jacob, does not acknowledge us, even though my own parents don't acknowledge me, this would be like me saying, even if Bob Graham should not acknowledge me as his son, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. In other words, we're adoring God saying, you are more a father to me than Bob Graham, than my own fleshly father. Verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? It's recognizing the sovereignty of God. And harden our heart. This is like Pharaoh. And why do you harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Um, and now we're getting to this confession here in verse number 17. We've adored him, but we've recognized that God has made us wander. Our hearts are hard. We do not fear him. Verse 17, return for the sake of your servants, the tribe of your heritage, your holy people. Possession, uh, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those whom you have never ruled like Gentiles, like those who are not called by your name. We have become like people who don't even belong to you. And that could be their circumstance, that could be their sin. It's a little, a bit of both here, I believe. There's going to be more confession in this prayer, but right now it's going to go to some petition. This is Israel asking for Israel's benefit. Look at verse 1 of chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries that, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. This is asking for God to deliver us to his glory for his namesake. It is a, it is a petition, but it is, it is couched in the glory of God. When you did awesome things, verse 3, that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. It's petition that is just full of the glory of God. It's asking God to work on his benefit. So that would be, as a young man, you asking God, whatever you're going to do with my body, whatever you're going to do with my life, uh, God, have your way and have your glory in it. At the end of the day, I should not glory. You should glory. There's more confession in verses 5 through 7. Verse 5, you meet him joyfully who works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? 
We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Whenever we think we're doing good stuff, it's, it's full of self-righteousness and self-centeredness and pride, and even that is a stench to God. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like a wind, take us. Our sin has taken us to places we did not even intend to go. Again, you could not say this to the judge at Olmstead County. <laughs> it's like, oh, drugs? <laughs> not only have I did drugs, it's taken me all the way over here, right? You you don't say that, okay? I mean, that is not, you, you, that's just not how you participate in that system. But before our God, you do. Because he already knows. And he forgives. Um, let's see, I was, where was I? I was, uh, the, verse number seven. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. And have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Our sin has just gotten us to a place, God, where it is just bad. It is just bad. And we acknowledge this. This is just beautiful confession. And uh, now there's going to be more petition. But just notice how the, the person praying just melts into a position of, God, this is your agenda. You shape me. You're the potter. I'm the clay. And whatever the outcome here is, and here, this is, this is my words whenever I'm praying, Make it so that when I look back on this from a, a thousand years from now, make it so that I'm most glad then. I might not be most glad with what you're going to do right now, but when I get a thousand years from now, make me really glad about what you did to me and for me right here in this position. All right? And, and look at how they, they, they just submit. Verse 8. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not the iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praise you. The temple has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? It's a petition, but it is such a submissive petition. And I would highly commend this kind of prayer life for you, for me. All of this cues up, this repentance cues up the new heaven, the new earth, the deliverance of Jerusalem forever. So as we conclude for today's passages, the God who judges the world for sin, judges with bloody judgment, forgives the sinner who confesses fully and acknowledges the sin. You are free to admit your sin to God. You are free to confess your sin and to acknowledge it for as wicked as it is to the end degree. We serve a God who is not repulsed by that. He already knew all of that. He is attracted to humility and to repentance and he responds to it in accord with his character which is merciful and loving. A great deliverance is coming. It's a global move by God. Mercy. Also vengeance. Walk uprightly with God. And if you have not been walking uprightly, if you are overtaken in your sin, even if you feel God gave you over to your sin and has hardened your heart in your sin, it's not too late. 
you can acknowledge that openly. He will forgive. He will redeem. He will even avenge all the wrongs that have been done to you, even while you were a sinner. He will do that for Israel. He will do that for you. Let's bow forward to prayer. I'm going to ask the deacons to come. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, which is just an opportunity to remember the basis for this economy of justice. None of this would be possible without a Savior who lived righteously for us, became our representative, became human, and lived a righteous life so that we can stand in Him in judgment. None of this would be possible without a Savior who suffered infinite loss when He suffered for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. You are loving. And Father, we are truly sinful creatures. I pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us. I pray, Father, that we would be compassionate people, that we would look out for one another and look out for your people, that, God, we would look out for the lost, sharing with them a word of warning and a word of truth and hope about eternity. Father, we thank you for our Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf. We are going to pause now. And with the symbols of bread and grape juice, we are going to remember his sacrifice for us. God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.